It's Monday the 2nd of September 2019. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. I'm joined this week by Branislav Beri, uh, Project Manager for International uh, for the International Department at the Altni Magnusson Institute and by the musician Jelena Ciric, who is also a journalist and translator for Iceland Review. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Um, three major law changes came into effect yesterday, the 1st of September. Um, namely, the new abortion law, the ban on all free bags from retailers, and the reduction in the so-called pink tax on sanitary products. Aviation has been in the news, with the government hoping to bolster flagging domestic flight routes, at the same time as Iceland Air has slashed its pilots' working hours over the Boeing 737 MAX grounding. Ongoing, of course. There's been controversy and conversation over the idea of cutting meat at Reykjavik school canteens. With over 20,000 Polish people now living in Iceland, one Polish Icelander has written a doctoral thesis on the benefits and challenges faced by her compatriots. Uh, The Education and Culture Minister has opened formal discussions that could see medieval manuscripts returned from Denmark to Iceland when the new House of Icelandic Studies opens. There was a strikingly positive poll showing that Reykvikingar apparently still love foreign tourists, which is good. And finally, anybody who was woken up by church bells just after seven o'clock this morning without knowing why, well, the reason was teenage drug use, obviously. So uh, where should we begin? Well, I think we have a manuscript specialist in the house, so why don't we start there? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly in your area of interest, if not... Yeah, I mean, you may not be working with these manuscripts on a daily basis, I don't know. Uh, I'm not a manuscript specialist, even though I work for the <laughs> Institute of Arte Magnusson, Magnusson for Icelandic Studies. Exciting, right? But I did learn something about the manuscripts, and it is an exciting topic, definitely, to uh, to read in the newspapers that uh, today, when we are preparing for the new House of Icelandic Studies, uh, that there is a... Uh, talk going on between uh, the two countries, Iceland and Denmark, about uh, uh, retrieving or, uh, how would I call it? Repatriating. Repatriating, mm. exactly, uh, the, the manuscripts, uh, the, the cultural, cultural heritage of Icelanders back to Iceland, because as we know, uh, Arti Magnusson, who lived uh, at the end of the uh, 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century, uh, worked mostly uh, among other places and uh, countries uh, in Denmark at the University of uh, Copenhagen. And at that time, as we know, the, there was no such an institute here in Iceland where he could work, and could collect the manuscripts. Mm. He also collected various other kinds of manuscripts, not only from Iceland, but uh, since he was based there, then he brought uh, that collection to there, and which has been stored, and uh, not in full uh, numbers now in Copenhagen, because many of the manuscripts and sagas are back to Iceland, but now they are talking about uh, um, repatriating the rest. And my personal opinion about it uh, is that such things we see elsewhere in the world, uh, repatriating various kinds of works of art or cultural heritages from different other countries that are placed in other pla- countries and museums than in the home, in the country of their home, uh, happening. So, personally, I think it is a very good and positive step towards 
uh, towards um, keeping all the manuscripts that he collected back together, um, especially in the new house of the um, um, Icelandic oh, studies. studies. Of the Icelandic, mm. uh, yes. Yeah. Especially yeah. in the new house of the Icelandic studies. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think in, in the past, if there was an issue when it came to repatriating the manuscripts, one argument against it would have been there weren't proper facilities in Iceland, but now those facilities are being built where they can be stored properly. And it seems just like a generally all-around positive thing. Of course, these talks are going to take some time, but the building's not ready yet either. So uh, it's very proactive of the Minister of Culture to get those talks going now. And yeah, I think it's also a very interesting topic globally. Uh, we were mentioning earlier the uh, the statues from Easter Island. There's one yes. very important, culturally important statue at the British Museum, and the indigenous people from Easter Island have gone there, went there last year uh, to ask for the return of this statue. And, and there was a team from the British Museum that visited the Easter Islands this year uh, to partially to discuss the same topic. So mm. I wonder if returning these manuscripts could even have some kind of global significance uh, in other similar cases. I could certainly see it would make headlines if yes. and when it happens. I think it's already uh, doing it, <laughs> maybe here mm. internally, but mm. uh, we are getting there. I mean, this is a cultural heritage of of uh, Icelanders in Iceland. So, And uh, the Arten Magnusson Institute for Icelandic Studies is the leading institute in the world for Icelandic studies, which is now uh, nowadays uh, place or its home is in Iceland, where it also uh, gives the opportunity to the scholars, to many scholars, to revisit or research these manuscripts again mm. and sagas. Do we know what kind of proportion of the manuscripts are still in Denmark? Because, like you say, most of them, I think, are already in Iceland, aren't they? Mm, yes. Um, to be honest, I don't know the proportion. No. Yeah. The institute at the University of Cape Copenhagen, I think it's called the Artni Magnusson Library. Am I uh, mistaken I, there? Art, it, it has a Latin sort of complicated name. Latin name. Yeah, it's like the Artna Magnian Institute or something oh. like that. Yeah. So it is, it's connected Artna to collection him. Yes, the, that's, yeah. personally. that's the proper. Yeah. So obviously a very, very important man, a very important collector of manuscripts from all over the world. Uh, they weren't just Icelandic and Nordic. Um, there's, there's things in all sorts of languages in this Yes. library in Copenhagen. Well, he, he collected various kinds of manuscripts, Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, mm. from other countries as well, but also Icelandic, especially Icelandic. So, so and... Uh, <laughs> well, I don't... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know so, th there are three books in particular I think that are being talked about. Ormur's book. Uh the uh, there's an important manuscript of Edda and the Reykjabók of Njáll. These are three of the books that are still in Denmark mm. that are being talked about being brought back to Iceland. Well, hopefully those talks go well um and and we see some progress. It would certainly be a great way to open the the House of Icelandic Studies if there was this big ceremony of bringing these these manuscripts home. Should we move on? Sure. Yes. Where should we go to next? Uh I think the meet in school 
lunches. It's so a very it's interesting a, topic. Yes, there, there was actually a lot of talk on Twitter about how boring this topic is. <laughs> But I disagree. I think food is really interesting because it's so tied to culture, so tied to identity. And we see all these emotional responses right away when, when people talk about changing what, what many people perceive as a traditional Icelandic diet, lamb, meat, fish, uh, and changing this in, in school cafeterias. Mm. Yes, I just wonder by, uh, by having read that news, I just wonder whether the news had been either unhappily written or whether the person had uh, unhappily uh, or had said what she has said uh, in a more unhappily way because they sound very... Uh, they uh, sound as if they want, the party wants to dictate what people should do. Mm. Honestly, or frankly speaking, um, I lacked in the news or in the, in the speech of, of the person uh, a very crucial fact, and that is what would the nu nutrition uh, say about the diet that they are proposing? Mm. Certainly, I'm not uh, vegan or, or uh, vegetarian. vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, and uh, maybe I lack this insight. I do, however, eat meat, not much. I do prefer fish to meat, and I, I eat a lot of vegetables. But I think uh, in order to stop the production of carbon dioxide, It, it is a whole chain of events that is linked to the meat production, not only the consumption of meat itself. Mm. So I think they should, she should have maybe advised about uh, being, uh, about uh, about how the the nutrition should be probably dosed or or or, <clears throat> or uh, uh, number one, the top of the list. Uh, yes, how 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 the how the cooking should be uh, done. Uh, I don't think we can omit meat here in Iceland, <laughs> because we live in a different uh, country which is close to the North Pole. It's uh, the environment is different. There are, however, cultures and, and societies in the world where they do not meet for whatever reason meat, and and they are, but these cultures have are thousands of thousands of years old and they have already knowledge of and the means how to prepare the food and they can grow certain things mm. and uh, for me uh, so just a statement about stop uh, cooking beef or meat in the canteens it's not uh, good enough and there should be something more connected to it than one statement in isolation what yeah. do you think about uh, it? I think one uh Yeah, absolutely. If we're going to change school diets, then that should be considered in a uh, in kind of look at the whole chain of, of maybe food production and food use in the schools. Uh, one big contributor to emissions is food waste. And as part of this talk, uh, many school cooks have pointed out that a lot of vegetables are wasted uh, or thrown out because children aren't necessarily choosing the the boiled vegetables uh, because they'd prefer to have the beef or the fish. Mm. Uh, so that stays behind on the plate. So that's another thing that can definitely be looked at. I think any considerations of how we can minimize our environmental impact are good considerations. Of course, it has to be looked at in a kind of overall sense and uh, proper research, of course, needs to be done in terms of 
Are kids still getting the proper nutrition in their school lunches? Is there still a balanced diet? Uh, yeah, as it is, there's not actually that much food, uh, meat use on school menus, uh, at least according to the sources I was reading on, on these news stories. Meat is only served maybe once or twice a week, uh, although fish and dairy products are served much more often. So, yeah, I, I mean, it could be a small change that could make a big impact, but of course we need to consider all of the relevant issues. Mm. Yes, I still think that the statement or the news was or is a little bit misleading because it should, uh, it should be uh, underlined with other ideas or other research that uh, support the reorganization of the diet in the canteens and uh, coming with some proposals for solutions how to improve the diet of or, and the well-being of of the of 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 the pupils or students or people who eat in the canteens and not only radically stopping uh, cooking meat and which would help eventually uh, maybe to stop the uh, uh, the production of the carbon dioxide I, I also wonder whether we would need to import some other kinds of vegetables or products that would supplement the meat whether that would not create additional production of the carbon dioxide by transportation and other means of production. So, <laughs> I mean, you could argue that a lot of uh, the meat sold in Iceland today, the cheaper meat that comes frozen, is uh, is imported anyway, mm. um, especially chicken and, and okay. pork and things. Um, and the original proposal, I think, came from the Vegan Society, and they said that ideally we think school meals should be completely vegan. However... In further interviews, um, from that, they were, it came more to light that they're trying to start a conversation and that maybe schools could drop meat and fish one day per week and that would be something to look at for the future. I and I, I do think when you're looking at big um, institutions that use a lot of food, a lot of resources, a small change can make a big difference. Of course. I think it's a very nice idea. However, this idea was m missing in that... Uh, conversation maybe in that conversation <clears throat> that uh, proposing vegan meals and actually teaching children or people who eat in the canteens about the ways how they can eat at home or elsewhere in restaurants is good i i think it's a very good idea however the the, the news or the statement uh, I would repeat myself, uh, sounded very much uh, radically and uh, I didn't completely agree with that. So Sometimes you have to make a big splash to get the conversation going, I suppose. Um, yeah, and uh, you see, uh, it has happened. <laughs> and it did happen. There was quite some backlash. Um, people are like, they, they want to malnourish our children um, and they should... And one um, counsellor for Sjavstadis Farokarin, I think, tweeted that maybe City Hall should start looking at itself first. That's and right. He their made a canteen. Facebook post uh, in a T-shirt that had the word meat, cute, in yeah. huge letters on the front. So this is what I mean, that food is so emotional for people. We kind of take it for granted on a day-to-day. -day, yes, But we, when we start talking about... We survive, we live on it. <laughs> yeah, when we start talking about food uh, and changing our diet, then becomes a question of identity, it becomes a debate of city versus country or left versus right uh, very quickly. And I think that is very interesting. So and I look forward to seeing where, where this goes. It was both, to me, it was both strange and also kind of obvious that it would become a left-right political issue. 
I mean, school canteens, it's not political, really, but it's so obvious that it was going to be that. And and here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else or should we move on? Uh, let's talk about more things. Let's talk about more things. Now, I understand that you interviewed um, recently Anna Maria Wojtynska. Yeah, Wojtynska, I Wojtynska. guess. I hope that I'm saying that right, Anna. <laughs> I know I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, um, about her doctoral research into the experiences of Polish people in Iceland. And it linked really well with the news that the number of Poles has gone over 20,000 for the first time. That's right. So Polish uh, immigrants, they're the largest group of immigrants uh, in Iceland and are some of the first kind of in the modern era. Uh, there have been already several waves of Polish immigration. And I'm writing a bit of an article uh, on that for the next rev- uh, the next issue of Iceland Review. And I interviewed Anna, uh, who did her doctoral research on this topic on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was also interviewed by Ruv, I know, and was kind of talking about the realities of the Polish community in Iceland. And there's a lot of really interesting things that come forth in her research. For example, that many Polish people come to Iceland uh, not planning on necessarily being here permanently or not planning on being here for a long time. And I think that's something that they share with a lot of immigrants to Iceland, really. It's just partially the nature of Iceland as a country, maybe being so isolated and different, but uh, it's also just a reflection of kind of a changing labor market. People are much more mobile. Uh, But it's really interesting to think about what that means for Icelandic society as well, to have such a huge group of people that are kind of see themselves as only partially here, maybe. Mm. I found the topic of her research and her doctoral thesis very interesting because I think more such research should be done here in Iceland and maybe also with other uh, minority groups. So I think <clears throat> this can be a nice example of how can how it can be done from one point of view, definitely. So I hope to see other research, whether it's a, a doctoral thesis or an MA thesis or even a bachelor thesis uh, on this topic further on. <clears throat> uh, still, I can't... I, I can't stop thinking about food, <laughs> but uh, in the, in in the in the interview in in the, in the news in the news article in the short uh, news article the, uh, she, uh, she also mentioned that uh, there is lack of or there is no Polish restaurant here in Reykjavik. So, and uh, I do I have seen that too. It, there is there isn't any. Uh, at least I don't know of any where in Iceland, where that could be. I could see in elsewhere in the world that there are Polish restaurants in other countries where there is a huge Polish community, for example, mm. or other various kinds of restaurants, um, French, Italian, that we know, they're mostly everywhere, the Italian restaurants. It, it, it's not... Uh, uh, it's not... Um, uh, what is it called? Um, it's not... I mean, with the Polish restaurant idea, I think there's a lot of people more than Poles who would like to go and eat there. Well, this is what I don't know about that. I mean, maybe I should read her PhD thesis. I don't know. (laughs) But that would be interesting to see whether she actually asked this question. And what I do know, however, is that Polish... uh, Sorry, that the, the market here in Iceland is very small. 
And most of the people who come and eat in restaurants are tourists that come to Iceland. So even though there would be a Polish restaurant, that's my personal opinion, it would probably survive for the in the beginning, maybe one or two years, but let's see how it would turn out after that, where when all the Poles have already been uh, to that restaurant and other, maybe Icelandic people or other foreigners who live here or tourists that have visited that restaurant, whether that would be as as um, popular as other kinds of restaurants like Mexican, which is, you know, Mexican food is world, uh, uh, it's widely known. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it's a question about the, the, the market here, whether, whether such a restaurant would survive, even though I would like to see such a restaurant, I would like to go and visit. But the question is whether it would survive. Yeah, eventually. I think it would maybe require a bit more creative marketing than a Mexican restaurant or an maybe. Icelandic lamb restaurant or yes, something like that. Ha- um, I would, however, see a very nice fusion. Yeah, that would be... I'd yes. be interested in eating there. Fusion um, kitchen, Polish fusion, Icelandic fusion. But I uh, think it yeah. dip, dip, it's like when we are talking different concepts, mm-hmm. but it, it depends again on the on the market setup on the idea, on the um, on the uh, group of people that uh, the restaurant is going to address. Mm. So, yeah, I think it was an interesting question because it points to sort of the the specific situation of the Polish community here. Why is it that there isn't uh, this kind of this kind of business coming out of the Polish community? Is it because Polish people, uh, many of them, see themselves as very well connected to Poland? They go home very often uh, and maybe they're they're not ready to kind of make this sort of commitment to Iceland that opening a restaurant and, and that particular kind of business entails. Although apparently so. there are Polish people that do own restaurants here. They're That's just not true. serving they're Polish food. They're not serving food. Polish food. So I think it's, it can maybe tell us something very interesting about just the realities of the Polish community here, uh, mm. in what ways they're connecting to the Icelandic community and in what ways they aren't, perhaps. Some of the interesting cultural things that she seems to be um, finding out in her research was um, that people that think they're going to stay for a very short time, they don't learn the language and therefore they don't associate, uh, they don't get involved in Icelandic community in the same way that others do. Mm. And, they, and she found that ability to speak Icelandic was a very key factor in integrating to society. Yes. None of this is surprising. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we can see it elsewhere in the world. We can see it on other minorities as well here in Iceland. Mm-hmm. That uh, when we are talking about this, we are talking about guest workers. It is a German term, actually, uh, mm-hmm. translated mm-hmm. into English now. But we are talking about guests that come here to work and then leave. Sometimes... Uh, it doesn't happen because they start liking it in that country and they start living in there. And but uh, yes, it is the 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 short-term plan that people come usually here with uh, to live, and then uh, they leave usually. So, uh, on the other hand, there are many people that come for a short term. They don't plan on staying, and then before they know it, fifteen years have passed or <laughs> yes. more. And I think all of us probably know people like this. Are you talking uh, about your personal experience? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been here for quite that long yet, but okay. uh, yeah, I think uh, that's also a reality that I think is really interesting and, and mm. needs to be addressed more. And I think if there's going to be integration, I mean, obviously the Polish community is contributing mm. a vast amount to Iceland as it is, uh, but I think whether they're, you know, specific individuals are staying for a short time or a long time, but I think, they're, you know, it takes two to tango. Yeah. The Icelandic government maybe can 
also take a look at how they can welcome immigrants mm. yes. uh, and encourage dialogue between different communities. Yes. That's something that I think the country could benefit from greatly. Yes, but what I also do think is that the key to the society, especially here, is the language, speaking the language of the of that country where one lives. Absolutely. Because, uh, because maybe you, we can both follow up on this personally, that the, <clears throat> the language, speaking Icelandic language or knowing Icelandic language, is the key to not only the society to find friends and, and to get to know other people, but also to get jobs that uh, one likes, that uh, to get education, because not everything is taught here in English, as many people would think. But uh, most of the subjects here in uh, uh, in Iceland and many universities are taught only in Icelandic. However, there are programs where English is uh, used. <coughs> so for that reason, Icelandic learning Icelandic uh, is very, very much uh, the problem and the key here. And I think, as you mentioned, that the government should think about how to integrate the people. And maybe, and I think, they are already doing it with uh, their with their project or program called Aufram Islenska, which ties into the manuscripts well. That's also part of the <laughs> part of this program of uh, kind of strengthening the status of the Icelandic language. Mm. So yeah, along, along with bringing manuscripts home, I think it'd be nice to see more support of Icelandic teaching and learning. Right. I'm going to put my foot down. We've got time to very, <laughs> very, very quickly cover one more thing before the program finishes. Time does fly. Um, there was the, the tourism report or, or, or poll among people that live in Reykjavik. There was the aeroplanes. Um, Mike Pence. Uh, where should we go? Airplanes. Airplanes, great. <coughs> I like airplanes. <laughs> I believe you're learning to fly, aren't you? Yes, that's you? true. Oh. I am trying Exciting. to find time to uh, commit to my lessons, flying lessons, which is very demanding and uh, very very interesting at the same time so that's my passion to be honest also very interesting is uh, domestic aviation in iceland yes <laughs> it is uh, because passenger numbers are down massively in mm. including a huge drop in the number of foreign tourists mm. flying domestically mm. and the reason is it's so expensive yes simple i think this is i'm to be honest i really don't know what else is behind that but i think the price of a ticket within uh, domestically within Iceland is uh, ridiculously expensive. But we could also ask the CEO of Iceland Air Connect why the prices are high, and maybe he would answer that they need to be high because they need they basically need to uh, use the uh, the money to support all the all the the staff that works, pay salaries, and pay the maintenance. It's yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a cheap business to run, that's for no. sure. Uh, and it, this is a problem, again, faced in many other countries. I grew up in Canada. I, in a way, this is a problem faced by countries that have a large land area compared to their population. Mm. There's a small population. You can't necessarily support such an expensive business mm. with, with just the local numbers. And, of course, there was a big drop in foreign tourists yes, uh, flying definitely. on domestic flights. And I think it's kind of a shame that... Uh, these changes in the tourism industry can affect 
local transportation so greatly and yes. affect local people's quality of life, people yes. who live in, in remote areas. Yes. So I think it absolutely makes sense for the government to find some way to compensate for these changes. So, and they were pointing to the what the was Scottish called the Scottish solution. solution That's right. So exactly. again, it's a, yeah, a system of domestic flights where the government either sponsors particular routes hmm. to remote areas, uh, but also subsidizes flight ticket uh, airfare but, prices for locals living in those remote areas. I think it would yes. be great to see that in Iceland. That, that, that's mm. one thing, for example. And the other thing is, because I've seen it, um, I've seen the development of of, uh, of uh, tickets being sold through Iceland uh, Connect, for example. We mustn't forget about the that things that happen now, They there was a cause somewhere be, uh, before. I don't think this is a short-term cause that oh suddenly people decided not to fly and so on. I think people, especially those who live here in Iceland, have seen the increase in prices of flight tickets domestically um, uh, since some many years actually because of the tourism boom. Uh, I think also airlines were trying to uh, to earn a lot of money on flight tickets, and that actually I think has put people off. Um, buying flight tickets or even thinking about purchasing a flight ticket and instead they probably learned that sharing a car or driving is probably easier and cheaper for them even though it may not be as environmentally friendly as as, as probably flying would be if we count on, on the, the use of petrol per passenger or per seat but I think uh, this this has caused that people stop thinking about buying tickets and just focused on, on probably using different means of transportation within Iceland. And of course the politicians that are supporting the Scottish method is are, are saying that Iceland is set up in a way that essential services that everybody needs to access are only available in Reykjavik. Yes. And therefore it's the government's responsibility yes, I agree to make with sure that. people can afford to get there. Because yes, exactly. it's 10 hours to drive to some of these places. Exactly, I agree with that. And it may be difficult not only for people who are accessing medical services, but also other people uh, who seek education. Uh, yeah, even certain shops and, and theatres yes. and things, these are all things that we yeah, need in our lives. Absolutely, and uh, in Scotland it's also seen as something that supports local economies in mm. these remote places. If we have well-connected flights around the country, then mm. it's easier to organize a conference in a remote town. And, and then we see more businesses perhaps thriving. I think that would most likely be the effect of, of having a strengthened uh, flight network. And possibly more tax revenues to support <laughs> the subsidies as a result. Who knows? Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> well, there we go. It's been a, a truly packed show today, um, but the clock doesn't does not care about that so um, we are actually out of time um, The Week in Iceland will return to roof.as forward slash English Roof English on Facebook to the Roof app and a podcast including on Spotify next Monday afternoon the 2nd no today's the 2nd of September next Monday afternoon this is last week's script <laughs> the 9th yes That's the 9th um, on the note of the app, if you are still using Roof's Sarperin app, please do go into your app store and download the new app. Um, it is much, much better. A massive thanks to my guests, Branislav Beri and Jelena Ciric, and thanks too to Lydia Gretastotir for running the studio. We like to finish the show with the number one song on the Raustver chart, and this week that is of Monsters and Men with Wild Roses. Bye for now. Wild Roses on it.